Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, get a Bible on your lap in front of you to John chapter 12. John's the fourth book into the New Testament. If you need a Bible under a seat somewhere nearby, you'll find a copy under one of those chairs. Page 898 in that Bible is where we'll be, John chapter 12, this morning. And while you uh, navigate your way to that part in the Bible, let me just ask this question. Uh, what do you think of when you think about the lifestyle of royalty? Okay? What do you think of when you think of the lifestyle of a king or a queen? What are the images that come to mind when you think about the lifestyle of royalty? Let me kind of help us with this. Uh, let's start with maybe uh, the most familiar royal family to us here in the West, and a uh, picture of Queen Elizabeth here. And uh, we certainly uh, follow through the news uh, events of Queen Elizabeth, even here in the country, we follow um, probably more the news of her, uh, what would be grandsons, right? The princes, right? Uh, but a, a little bit of Queen Elizabeth here, uh, Buckingham Palace. Who's, who's ever visited Buckingham Palace? It's a place that's on the list for me. So you think about royalty and you're like, yeah, you know, it'd be okay living in a house like that, right? You know, that's not bad. Not just, a, just a small little shack there, Buckingham Palace. Um, we know about all of the media buzz that has surrounded the royal weddings of our generation, but that's not new. Uh, this is a picture, if you can see it, of uh, 1947, uh, the crowds outside of Buckingham Palace for Queen Elizabeth's wedding. And so the, the popularity, the, the buzz, the pomp and circumstance is not new for the kind of uh, near-term royal weddings. And uh, uh, so when you think about the life of royalty, what comes to mind? Um, maybe a lesser-known king to us here. This is uh, the king of Sweden, King uh, Carl XVI Gustav, right? And so and here's the place King Carl XVI Gustav calls home, you know, uh, palace, you know, uh, royalty, luxury, it is what it is. Uh, a picture of King Salman, and I don't even know if I said that right, King of Saudi Arabia. And let's just fast forward right past his palaces and his cars to his yacht. So here's an aerial view of his yacht, right? Um, a, a little shot of the inside of one room in his yacht, but, but a, a little background on his yacht. Uh, Eight-deck super yacht, which includes a hospital, yes, a hospital, right? An office, a lounge, a secretary's office, a gym, a cinema, a library, a saloon, a business center, and a spa. It's his boat, right? Uh, so King Solomon's yacht. I, I actually brought a picture of uh, the Graham family yacht in this season of life for us. Here's the Graham <laughs> family yacht. We get to play with that yacht about every night at bath time, and it's, it's, it's great. But when you, th when you think about royalty, aren't these the images that come to mind? Uh, the, the saying, living like kings, right? And, and now, I, I'm showing all this not to make any sort of statement about whether kings or queens should live in palaces or have yachts. It's not the point at all. I just want these images uh, on the forefront of our minds as we turn uh, towards Easter Sunday and, 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 and specifically today as we look at the king that we follow. Because Christians, we follow a king. And he is the king of kings. And so we saw Queen Elizabeth, we saw the king of Sweden, we saw the king of Saudi Arabia. We follow a king that sits over and above every other king. 
And yet when this king came from heaven, he came from heaven. And when he came to earth, and when he walked on this earth, um, his life looked nothing like the images that we just saw right here. Uh, Where he was born uh, resembled nothing of luxury. Where he slept some nights out in the wilderness under the stars, you you, you wouldn't have walked by him and his disciples and gone, man, there's a king right there. Check out his digs tonight. The way that this king died uh, resembles nothing of uh, uh, the, the pomp and circumstance and popularity that a king should have. Uh, Christians, we follow a king, but we follow a suffering king. And as we turn our eyes towards Easter Sunday with the weeks leading up to it, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at uh, some of the aspects of the suffering, the glory of the suffering of the Christ. Uh, Today, we look at him as a suffering king. Next Sunday, we look at him as suffering servant. The week after that, we look at him as the suffering priest. Uh, That leads us into Good Friday, and oh, I hope that you will mark your calendar for that Good Friday service as we look at the suffering lamb and we just gaze all evening long at our Savior high and lifted up on the cross, which will then lead us to Easter Sunday. And we will see that all of the suffering of Jesus Christ, uh, it it had a purpose to it. It He wasn't just a victim of suffering of mean people. There was a purpose in the suffering, and we'll gather here on Resurrection Sunday, and we'll, we'll, we'll shoot the rocket of worship off, and we'll never let the rocket come back down as we look at him as the risen conqueror over all the suffering that he endured. That's where we're going in the weeks. But we have to start this Sunday by gazing on the glory of the suffering king. The fact that we follow a king, but his life looks so different from the luxury, from the pomp and circumstance, from the popularity that we often think should accompany that of kingship. And so um, I just want to ask this as, as we get going here today. Why? Why was Jesus a suffering king? And what, what was being accomplished through that suffering? And then at the, at, right at the end of today's message, we get to some deep application for every one of us sitting in this room. Um, what's it mean for us who follow him? Right? Okay, what does is, what is the fact that Jesus is a suffering king mean for us who call him king, who call him Lord, and who call him master. What implications does this have on our lives? So today, uh, John chapter 12, we're going to journey through 26 verses. Um, these, this, this passage today, um, we can best navigate by thinking through it in three different scenes. Three different scenes. And so scene one today we'll start with, and uh, we'll call scene one this, his preparation for burial. And now you got to know, uh, we're not going to come anywhere close to the Garden of Gethsemane today. We're not going to come anywhere close to the trials, anywhere close to the beatings, anywhere close to the crown of thorns. We're not going to come anywhere close to the crucifixion. But there's something that happened before all of that in which Jesus says, hey, what just happened here? I was being prepared for a burial. And we're going to look at scene one, what Jesus meant when he said, um, that his body was being prepared for burial. Then we're going to move over to scene two. And scene two we'll call his prophecy fulfilled. 
uh, some awesome event happened. And uh, if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with the Bible, you are familiar with this event. But I'm praying that God brings a freshness to that event of what in the world was going on, spoiler alert, when Jesus came riding into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. What was really happening there? More so than just Jesus riding on the back of a donkey. What was that all about? And we look at scene two, his prophecy fulfilled. And then scene three, uh, scene three today is, is what we'll call my privilege to follow. That at the end of this passage, Jesus is basically going to say, hey, 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 um, if I'm your king, and this was the way in which I walked, what do you think that means for all of you who follow me? And we're going to talk about the privilege that we get to follow. So if in scene one and scene two, you're like, hey, that's cool. That's interesting stuff about Jesus and all. But what in the world does this have to do with my day the rest of the day, my day, uh, my week this week, how I think about living with my family and going to work? Uh, scene three will get us there. And so uh, we gaze on the glory of the suffering king today. Pray with me and let's get into God's word. Father, um, help us now. Lord, just as Megan was praying at the close of the worship, Lord, we, we want to hear from you. We gather in this place to hear from you. Lord, your word has to be taught accurately right now with the power that only your Holy Spirit can infuse on it. God, please, would you get the preacher out of the way and would your word be lifted up as a feast before us for us to feast on? God, please. We're just begging you. Would you meet with us here? Would you descend down with your power and your presence on this place as we worship you through the proclamation of your word? And God, have your way in our hearts here today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, scene one. Scene one. His preparation for burial. John 12, uh, verse 1. Jump there with me. Six days before the what? Okay, just tuck that away. That gives us a bit of frame of reference for what's going on. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Of course she did, right? Right? Bible jokes. You, got, you get that there? Right? Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Okay, now just, just stop there because uh, the background has just been set. Uh, all of John chapter 11, most of John chapter 11 before this, has been about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Remember, Jesus is in another town. They're like, hey, your friend Lazarus has died. And he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait like three more days and then we'll go. And they're like, I don't get it. And so they wait, uh, Jesus comes into Bethany, Lazarus has been dead a couple days, he's wrapped in burial cloths, and Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And if you can get there and fathom that, this dude walks out of a tomb wrapped in burial cloths, and Jesus calls him out. No, 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 we have to understand something about what Jesus knew he was doing at that moment. It's the raising of Lazarus that's kind of the, cam uh, the straw that bakes, breaks the camel's back for all the religious leaders of that day. They're like, okay, he's got to go. Like, we can't just have Jesus walking around the towns raising people from the dead. Like, he's got to go. And the, 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 um, the plans of killing Jesus really uh, gains some momentum now. And Jesus knows this. And so Jesus from here, he disappears off into this kind of um, 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 
off the beaten path town called Ephraim, right on the edge of the Judean wilderness. And he camps out there for a time, but now he's left the edge of the Judean wilderness. He's come back into Bethany. Bethany is only about two miles outside of Jerusalem. As Jesus makes his way back to Bethany, understand, he knows he is walking right into the teeth of the religious leaders. He has, he has his face set now on the cross. He knows what he's doing. And so back to Bethany he comes, and they're like, hey, Jesus is back. What do we do? Let's, let's, let's have a dinner. Let's throw a feast. Let's gather people. And it says Jesus is there in Bethany at a dinner. Martha's serving. Lazarus is sitting at the table. What are those conversations like, right? Hey, Jesus, so remember that one time, like, I was dead, and you're like, hey, man, come out. And I came out. Yeah, that was cool. Like, what do you talk, like, what do you, what do you talk about there? Lazarus is sitting there. There's others around the table. So we got Martha. We got Lazarus. There's another sibling in that mix, though, Mary. Where's she? We're about to find out. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of their perfume. So here we are. We're, we're at the dinner. People are seated around the table. Now when we think of a dinner, kind of in our Western culture, we think of sitting upright in a chair. Our feet are under a table. Jesus' day, when it says they're reclining at table, um, they, they're most likely on, a, on a, a, a table that would have been much lower to the ground. And I'm not going to act it out for you, but um, they're leaning probably on their left elbow. Their feet kicked out on some sort of mat or couch behind them. And they're, that, they're reclining at table. They're leaning there, and they're eating off the table. All of a sudden, imagine this. You, you have a, a dinner party going on. All of a sudden, Mary, enter Mary. She walks in the room, and it says she has a pound of expensive uh, um, um, perfume, fragrance. And uh, the Bible's about to tell us how expensive this thing is. But uh, she, she takes this fragrance, most likely takes it against the table, breaks off the neck of it, and pours all of this out over the feet of Jesus. I, I think based on um, some, uh, some passages we have in the other Gospels that I think are talking about the same thing, I think she probably poured it over more than just his feet. But John is focused on uh, her pouring it over his feet and then she gets down and she wipes the, uh, uh, the, 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 the perfume she has just poured over his feet with her hair. And it says, the fragrance filled the whole room. And if you can imagine, the entire room stops. You're having a dinner party at your house. Someone walks in, breaks the thing of ointment over the side of your table, expensive ointment. It said 300 denarii is what it's about to tell us is what it was worth. Okay, what, what's that mean? A denarii was a common laborer's, a one denarii was a day's wage for a common laborer. 
Uh, in this day, you would have worked about 300 days, not including Sabbaths and uh, religious uh, festivals. This is a year's worth of work, broken, poured out on Jesus. And there she is at his feet, wiping the ointment with her hair, and everyone is watching this going, what in the world is going on? And Jesus, in a moment, is about to tell us what's going on. But before we get there, uh, some commentary on what do the people sitting in the room think about what has just happened here? Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, and all God's people said boo, um, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Like, you see, Judas is over there at the corner of the table like, what is she doing? Like, she just broke that off. That's a year's worth of work. She dumped it all out on Jesus, wasting it. This could have been sold, and we could have taken the money and given it to the poor. Now, John's got some commentary on what is really going on in Judas's head here. Verse 5, uh, uh, verse 6. Uh, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. A little commentary there from John over what's really going on in Judas's heart here. And so you have Judas. He's voicing like, what is up with this? Why would she waste this? Now Jesus gets to what in the world is happening with this scene right here, verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Or another way to translate, you might have a footnote in your Bible there. Or leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. Uh, Mark, a similar account of this, and Mark 14, 8 says this, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Leave her alone. Something big just happened here. Uh, this is much more than just an extravagant act of worship from a devoted follower of me. Uh, this, is a, this is a moment of an extravagant act of worship under the sovereignty of God in which Mary walking in, pouring this over me, has anointed my body for burial. Jesus, flat out, in plain language, has just said at this dinner party, um, I, a death is coming. And a burial is coming. And then he goes on even more explicitly to say something. Verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He said, listen, a time's coming when I'm not going to be walking with you anymore in body. The poor will still be here. You'll have a chance to serve them. But there's a day coming, and it's coming quickly, when, when I will not be walking with you in body anymore. I won't be here physically with you anymore. And Jesus has just told us what in the world is going on at this dinner party scene here. His body has been prepared for burial. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. He has headed out for a time to a, a, a far-off city, a town, to just kind of hide out. But now his face is set on Jerusalem. He's come back to Bethany at this dinner party. His body's been anointed for burial. And uh, uh, scene one moves us to scene two. What's next? 
his prophecy fulfilled. Little transition part here, verse 9, read it with me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They're like, okay, Jesus has to die, and this Lazarus guy, everyone's talking about how he got raised from the dead by Jesus, so he's got to die too. Uh, They make plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so the crowds, and there would have been crowds in Jerusalem at this time. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The crowds here, you got Jesus at a dinner party in Bethany about two miles outside of Jerusalem. You have Lazarus who's sitting around the same table. You got the guy who raised someone from the dead. And you got the guy who was raised from the dead at the same place. And people are going out to get a, to get a, get a glimpse of this. We got to see this. And the, the, I want you to feel the electricity going through more and more of the crowds. I want you to feel the buzz, the energy, uh, how, how people are talking about G- Jesus. Hey, Jesus, Jesus is coming. Like, he, he raised this guy from the dead. Like, I was there. I saw. And he's at a, he's at a dinner in Bethany, and, and he's headed towards Jerusalem. And now uh, that gets us to scene two, this prophecy fulfilled. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, this is the part in the story when if you grew up in church, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what's coming. Um, Palm branches, palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, got it. Go to scene three. No, 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 hold on. The next day, the large crowd emphasize all caps, L-A-R-G-E, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, Some sort of emoji that indicates, you know, focus. The large crowd that has gathered for the feast, for the Passover feast. We have to set the stage here so that when we get to Jesus riding in on a donkey, we understand the electricity going through Jerusalem at that moment. So, a large crowd. What would a Passover week have looked like? Um, Remember, uh, that dinner happened six days before the Passover. Uh, We're now five days before the Passover The week leading up to Passover was a week of ceremonial cleansing. And so you you didn't just kind of come into Jerusalem uh, for the Passover meal. You would have made your way to Jerusalem. Devout Jews would have made their way to Jerusalem for that week leading up to Passover, uh, Passover to take part in the ceremonial cleansing. And so masses of people have come back to Jerusalem. Jewish historian Josephus Uh, And talking not about this Passover, but one near its time, estimated somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for the Passover celebrations. And you're like, okay, 2.7 million, that's a lot, but give me some frame of reference. Happy to. You remember when the Super Bowl was in Indy? No one remembers that? The, The Super Bowl was in Indy a couple years back. And it was cool. It was great. The Super Bowl is this football game. Yeah. Um, Super Bowl in Indy. Uh, how many of you made your way down to like Super Bowl Village that week? Okay. And so you, you remember the 
energy. You remember the crowds. Certainly, um, Super Bowl Village was taken up with a lot of us Central Indiana people. But how many people came into Indianapolis for the event that week? Uh, from what I read this week, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000. So 150,000 outside of Indy people came to Indy for the Super Bowl. Now, compare that and what Super Bowl Village and what downtown Indy felt like to 2.7 million in Jerusalem for Passover. Um, another frame of reference, how many of you uh, been to Indy 500? How many of you go every year to Indy 500? How many of you have never been to Indy 500 and you don't ever plan to go to Indy 500? Okay. Um, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm no Indy 500 buff, but what? Roughly 300,000 people, is that right? Is that right? R roughly, you know, so you've got a couple hundred thousand people in uh, Indy, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, I'm letting you know my racing expertise here. That big racetrack on the west side. Um, so if you're there, just look around and go, okay, 300, roughly 300,000 people. Compare that, 2.7 million people uh, by Josephus, the historian of the day's estimate, descending on Jerusalem. Uh, Mardi Gras, how many of you heard this thing of Mardi Gras? I'm sparing uh, showing any pictures of Mardi Gras. Um, um, about 1.4 million people descend on New Orleans for the Mardi Gras festivity. 2.7 million people back in Jerusalem for Passover. The crowds, the electricity, the buzz. You know what it's like when you're in a Super Bowl village type thing. Um, and something massive is going to happen here. And again, if you've grown up around the Bible, you're like, yeah, I know, palms, Hosanna, Hosanna. No, this is massive. What's about to take place? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, say the word, church, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the, what's it say, even the king of Israel. So you have all of these masses of people. Jesus is coming into town. They're running to the streets that he's going to be. They're grabbing palm branches off trees. They're waving them and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. What in the world does Hosanna mean? Every devout Jew would have known what Psalm 118 spoke of. The roots of Hosanna says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. When these people gather along the streets, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, that word Hosanna, is a, it's a transliteration. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew Hosanna. And that literally means give salvation now. When the people line the streets and Jesus makes his way in, you know what they're thinking? Our king, our king, our king has come. He's come, he's come, he's come. King, give us salvation now. What are they saying? Free us from Roman rule. 
Make us our own independent nation again. May Israel rise again. And they're so focused on Jesus coming into town, taking his place up on a throne and and, and running a coup against the Romans and freeing them from Roman rule and setting himself up as a national king right then, right there. And that's not at all the same intention that Jesus has in mind. Keep reading. Verse 13. Uh, Verse 14. And Jesus found, what did he find? He found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9.9, let me quote it right out of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so he's making his way into Jerusalem. They're shouting, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, save us now. Set yourself up as king. Uh, let's, let's get out from under Roman rule. Here he is on a donkey, fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Here your king comes. He's coming, he's coming. And the people are going nuts. They think they're Messiah, a nationalistic, set yourself up as king, save us from Roman rule. Messiah is riding into town. But hear this, church. Jesus came into Jerusalem that day not on a war horse to lead revolt against Rome, but humbly on a donkey to lead a revolt against sin. Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day not bent on killing Caesar, but bent on crushing sin. Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, not the king the people wanted in the moment, but the king these people and every people since has desperately needed in their hearts. Say amen, church. He rides into town, and the people are like, our Messiah, our Messiah, we're finally going to be free from the Romans. And Jesus riding on this donkey is like, you are right and part of it. Here comes your king. But I'm coming as a king who wants to reign in your heart. And no one gets it. No one gets it. Even a statement here, including his own disciples. Verse, uh, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had been, uh, and, uh, had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, here they are again, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look. What's it say next? The world has gone after him. So you have, the, or you have the Pharisees in the background. They're seeing the crowds flock to the edge of the street, waving the palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're back in the back with arms folded going, look, look what we've gained. The whole world is going after him. And that little statement there is a very interesting transition out of scene two and into scene three. The world has gone after him. Scene three my privilege to follow. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship 
at the feast were some Greeks. What? Now, among those who went out to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some Gentiles, uh, some apparently God-fearing Gentiles. But where John tells us here, these weren't Jews. They might have been converts to Judaism, but they were through and through by birth. These are Gentiles. They've come up to the feast to worship, and now they're going to make a request. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew, and Philip went and told Jesus. And so you have these Gentiles by birth. Uh, they come uh, to a disciple. They say, hey, 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 we've heard about Jesus. We, we want to see Jesus. Philip's like, I don't really know what to do with this. He goes to Andrew. He's like, hey, Andrew, we've got some Gentiles. They want to see Jesus. What do you think we should do? Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. They're like, what do you think? You, you want to see these guys? And now what we expect to come is Jesus to go, yeah, 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 bring them in. Like, let's, let's, let's get some food. Like, let's have a meal. Let's, you know, bring them in. Let's talk. Jesus responds. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So you're Philip and Andrew. Hey, Jesus, some Gentiles want to see you. You want us to bring them in? What do you want to do? Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour has come. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. What was that? Was that a yes? Like, do you think he wants them to come in? What in the world is Jesus doing here? How is he taking a simple question of, hey, uh, do you want these Gentiles to come in or not and see you? And he's turned it into a teaching moment of something much more massive. Remember, the transition from scene two to scene three was the world has gone after him. In the very next verse, we're told Gentiles are now coming seeking Jesus. With the request of these Gentiles to come see Jesus, Jesus uses it as a teaching moment to say, oh, the Gentiles will see me. The hour has come. I will be glorified. I'm going to be raised up on a cross. I'm going to be buried in a tomb. And then I'm going to raise to life again. And in my raising to life, all who will call on me in faith, both Jew and Gentile, they will see me. Unless a grain of wheat, he's talking about himself, unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies. It cannot bear fruit. He's like, I'm going into the ground to die. But the fruit that's going to be born is salvation, come on church, to all the nations. These Gentiles want to see me. Oh baby, they're going to see me. When they call on me in faith, they will see me. They will know me. And he uses a simple request here from some Gentiles to teach 
about him descending into the ground and death and raising to life that salvation will be for the nations. Now, the glory of the suffering king. He's come to this point. We're kind of at the top of the hill, the climax of it. And he says, unless a grain of wheat goes into the earth and dies, it cannot bear fruit. And he's talking about himself. But then in just these few final verses, he gets to the implication, the application. Now, what should that mean for those who follow him? Verse 25. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, here at church, here at church, here at church, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So right on the heels of this statement, like he's like, I'm like a wheat, I'm like a grain of wheat. It's about to go into the ground and die. And in my death, the fruit of salvation will be birthed for all the nations, Jew and Gentile. And then he looks at his followers and he speaks to us as followers of him today. And he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. And you're like, whoa, 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 that sounds so contrary to like so much like self-help that I'm ta- like, what do you love? I thought I'm supposed to love my life. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about that if, if we uh, want to live lives that are all about self-preservation and self-exaltation and self-glory, he's like, listen, if you want to spend the years of this earth 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe years on this earth, if you want it to be all about self-protection and self-elevation and self-aggrandizement, self all of this self-self-stuff, he's like, it's, I'm grieved for you because there's going to come a day where death intersects your path and you just it's just done. Like, that's all it was. It's just the number of years you got on earth elevating and living for self. Whoever loves his life and just loves to elevate self will lose it. But then he says something so beautiful. Um, um, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I, when Jesus talks about hating our life there, I don't think that means walking around just like, I hate myself, I hate my. I think what he's talking about there is he's just saying, if you will instead reject the life of self-elevation, self-glory, self, 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 and you will die to self, unless a grain of wheat goes into the earth and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. And then he's like, now follow me in that way. Follow me in the way of the cross. Follow me in the crucified life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you read that and go, hate my life, like what? And so that I may live. And you're like, that doesn't sound fun at all. That doesn't sound freeing at all. No, no, no. The cross life, the way of the cross, 
the crucified life, the life denying self and living for the glory of Jesus, it's the most joy-filled, freeing life that we can possibly live. When we come to the place where you're just like, you know what, that person really just like, man, they just slammed me. They just totally like, man, like the things they said about me, and we're just like, you know what, I think a lot of it was true. It's okay. Because I'm not worried about like preserving and protecting and making much of myself. I'm just worried about Jesus getting glory from this life. It is the most freeing, self-denying life. And I think in this vein, Luke 9, 23, a statement Jesus made is maybe one of the most clear on what he's talking about here. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. And he says a similar thing on the heels of this. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus walked into Bethany to a dinner. His body was prepared for burial. He, he rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. In it proclaiming, yes, I am your coming king, but I'm a king not coming to sit on a throne right now. I'm, I'm a king coming to a cross right now, not to crush Rome in the moment, but to crush sin in the hearts for generations. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm like a grain of wheat gone into the earth. Unless I die, fruit cannot be born. And then he invites us to follow him in that. The self-denied way of the cross, crucified life. And yet, that can be a bit nebulous. What what does that mean? Okay, go live a self-denying, crucified, way of the cross life. Uh, What's that mean? Uh, Two two people in the room here today. Two people in the room. Uh, First group of you, um, you've made your way somehow by God's sovereignty to church this morning. And um, you walk in fully aware that you do not know Jesus as the king of your heart at all. And what Jesus invites you into today is, um, is a relationship. Is the joy of the crucified life. What do, what do I mean by that? What Jesus invites you into today is for you to be able to say, like Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. The old me is gone. What do you mean old old you? Um, Before we know Jesus, our life is dominated by sin, and we, self, sits as king on the throne of our heart. And you and I both know how miserable it is when when you sit on the throne of your own heart. The most miserable seasons of my life can can be directly correlated to the most self-focused seasons of my life. Anyone with me on that? They just are. I just look back, I'm like, man, that was a season full of regret, and that didn't go as planned. I'm like, I was just so self-consumed. The most miserable seasons of my life directly correlate the most self-focused seasons of my life. And Jesus has come and he's offered you the way of denying self and taking up your cross and following him. 
following him in the way of the cross, following him in the crucified life. And the Bible tells you clearly that if today in this room right here, you will call on him in faith, if you will believe in him, he comes in and he uh, crucifies the old self and he gives you a brand new nature. He makes you a child of his. He becomes king. And so I'm just trusting for whoever is in group number one here today, and that applies to you, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit in this moment to just absolutely crush you with his love in such a way that you can't walk out of here without being constrained by the Spirit to surrender your life to the Lordship and the Kingship of Jesus Christ in your heart in this moment here right now. Holy Spirit, do that. But then a uh, second group of you, and uh, stand, because i got to get us out of here, stand to your feet as I talk to the second group of you. Um, second group of you, you do know King Jesus. You have relationship with him. You know that you know him. You know the joy of walking with him. I would just remind us today, we follow a suffering king. We follow a king who went the way of the cross. We follow a king who invites us into the crucified life. And I just pray that that would lead us Christians to do whatever it is that Jesus has called us to, to go wherever he says to go and to do whatever he says to, to do. And then you're like, well, that might be dangerous. That might cost me. It absolutely might. And guess what? Something he said there. You're like, what's the reward in that though? To follow him in the life of suffering. He says, where I am, there my servant will be as well. What's the reward? We get to be there with Jesus. And his presence overwhelms. And you're like, oh, man, I would never go back to that season of suffering, but oh, I'd go back to the nearness of his presence in it. If you're in a season of suffering right now, you just gotta know this. Where I am, there my servant will be also. You may be experiencing one of the near, most near presence of the Lord in the midst of your suffering that you might know on this side of heaven. Would you follow him in the way of the cross? And maybe that means some of us in the room, global missions and martyrdom, follow Jesus in that. But Christians, would that just influence how we walk out of here living as a husband and as a wife and as a parent and as a son and as a daughter and as an employer and as an employee? with the way of the cross, the crucified life. Yes, Jesus, if you call us into global missions and martyrdom, we'll go. But Lord, let it also influence the way I think about dishes and diapers. Let it also influence the way I think about sacrificing my schedule today for the furthering of another's schedule today. Let, let, let that also influence this week, turning down a great evening opportunity at work to be at my four-year-old's t-ball game. And I'm not equating those at all with global missions and martyrdom. I'm just saying, would the crucified life affect every single aspect and facet of following Jesus this week? Amen, church. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he use your life that his name would be proclaimed to the nations. Would you go this week and follow a suffering king? Harvest, we love you and we send you. We'll see you next week.